welcome to Behind the Glass Cabinet, a podcast where I, Ellie Armstrong, explore how science is constructed and displayed in museums. Each week, I'll be joined by a co-host for a conversation about a particular item you can go and see in a London museum. Together, we'll challenge, dissect and celebrate the stories the artefact could tell. My name is Zia Amosh Joshua. I am an educator, artist, researcher, and uh, activist. Yeah. <laughs> activist, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I formerly worked in uh, the Welcome Collection as a visitor experience assistant, uh, which sounds, to my mind, much more salacious than it is. <laughs> <laughs> How can I assist you with the experience? <laughs> Amazing, especially in a medical collection. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it could get pretty salacious. Yeah, the uh, Institute of Sexology. Unfortunately, I wasn't there during that exhibition, but apparently it got pretty wild. Um, or when the mist, did you hear about the mist? Yes, the I, yeah, I went to the mist. Yeah, the coloured mist. Yeah, yeah. A lot went on in there, <gasps> in, the, in, in the obscurity of the mist. Shocking. I know, yeah. I was scandalised when I arrived. Um... <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> it's all very above board, my job. Uh, and broadly, kind of theoretically, my areas of interest are symbiosis and the ways different organisms interrelate, emergent technology and what kind of ethical questions emergent technology poses. Um, and then finally, how we define and categorize the human and who gets to be human or a being invested with value and agency. Mm, Fantastic. And what's the object that you've brought for our listeners today? So um, I was intending to discuss an artwork by an artist called Alexa Wright. A series of artworks, actually, with this singular artworks in a series called After Image, and they were produced in 1997. Fantastic. Mm. Um, Could you describe this to our listeners, please? Sure. There are a few different things here but the artwork as it appears in the gallery which is different to the artwork itself is an image of a woman i would guess middle age white woman blonde hair in a kind of 70s living room setting maybe uh the room's kind of cluttered the woman has her hands posed uh on the armrests of an armchair and her left hand the wrist uh, aspect of it becomes suddenly very thin in relation to the rest of the arm. And then where it meets the hand, the hand kind of balloons massively. Uh, I'm describing this from memory now. I believe on that ballooned hand, there's a, a ring on her finger. Yeah, she's wearing an engagement oh, ring. Her engagement ring, yeah. yeah. It's a photograph, I should mm-hmm. say. Medium um, is the message. So yeah, it's a photograph. <laughs> And uh, so that's the artwork as you might encounter it within the gallery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's part of a series, you were saying. What's the theme of these works? So um, Alexa Wright in these artworks, this series, is exploring phantom limb syndrome, which for our listeners who maybe don't know. And in fact, actually, before I started engaging with this artwork, I didn't quite understand what the specificities of phantom limb were. So it's not just... Um, that someone who has an amputated limb feels like their hand is there or their limb is still there, which might to someone who doesn't have this experience sound relatively fine. Well, 
feels like I've still got a hand there. Um, it's generally accompanied with a feeling of intense irritation or pain. So um, phantom limb syndrome is often quite, uh, often for people who describe having it, it's quite burdensome yeah. because it's this continual irritation or, or pain or inflammation mm. feeling in a limb that isn't present uh, to, to the rest of the world. Um, so Alexa Wright, a uh, photographer, was keen to explore this condition. And so she got a, a wide number of participants um, and she interviewed them. And so the artwork in original isn't just this singular image as I've described it. It's, uh, uh tends to be a photograph of the uh, person as the world might see them. And then a second photograph after she's interviewed them and had them describe their experience of their accident and also describe their experience of how they perceive their limb, how they feel it to be. She digitally alters a second image to kind of represent for the rest of the world how that experience is. Mm. So she's trying to articulate both in the interview mm. and also in, in this kind of re-digitized image, trying to represent what that subjective internal experience is to the rest of the world. And, and does this uh, artwork have the interview with it so you can read about it? So as it is within the a medicine man gallery in welcome collection uh that uh description isn't there nor is the um original or the original image okay yeah which i think is and i only found this out being interested through uh, an anecdote that I'll, I'll give later being interested in this art artwork i only really uncovered this stuff in okay. in kind of exploring this artwork which i think is quite an interesting there are choices yeah definitely mm. so the uh interviewee so this piece uh when i was looking it up it has the title jn mm. um which presumably are the initials of the the interviewee mm -hmm. the subject of this portrait but um the person talks about the fact that uh they can not really feel their like arm that much but mm. that their hand is very present they feel like they can articulate the fingers on their hand mm. um so i was just wondering if that's like presumably plays into the way that uh, Wright has represented this in the in the piece so i think the intention is i think again another thing that comes out quite interestingly with this particular image um in in its kind of balloon aspect mm. of the hand and uh, the other images, if you look up Alexa Wright, you can see the other images on, on her website. Mm -hmm. And um, again, perhaps our audience knows a lot more about phantom limb syndrome than I did. But it was interesting for me to hear that a lot of the people experiencing this condition don't necessarily perceive their hand or their limb as it had been in life. For example, one person describes their limb floating above where their hand used to be so that their um, peroperception or the perception of space or, or size or even the ways in which they can someone describes being able to twist their uh, limb in impossible directions oh. I guess this kind of speaks to this incredible um, subjectivity of the human yeah, and I think that like there's also this really interesting idea that some of the images in the collection that aren't mm. in the gallery, in the After Images series, mm. even when they're the um, kind of enhanced images that Wright produces, they're still missing bits of their limbs. So some mm. there's one with a somebody who's missing a leg. Mm. And the reproduced or doctored image or, you know, the subjective image still misses a bit of the leg between mm. the knee and like the upper ankle. Mm. And that's because that's just not a space that that person experienced sensation with. Yeah. And it was very localized in their foot, mm. which I thought was really interesting that Wright's images really speak to that idea of the imagination doesn't have to be the exact same thing that it was in life. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, 
yeah I mean and it's uh, yeah learning about the piece Mm -hmm. which is very separate from encountering it in the gallery Mm -hmm. has really opened the piece up for me previously before I felt compelled to kind of learn more about the piece I hadn't felt any which way about it really Mm -hmm. it was only through a set of these kind of uh, encounters that I kind of learned more and have become really fascinated with it and what Um, what encounters were these here so as a visitor experience assistant an entirely unsalacious role uh, part of my duty was or is kind of the the invigilation of the gallery so trying to you know make sure that people don't uh, I don't know defecate on the artwork or uh, excellent exa- good yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah firebomb it or yeah. slide down the stairs exactly yeah. um, all the rest of it lick it or you know yeah. whatever whatever strikes the visitor <laughs> exactly in that moment whatever they're inspired to do I am the uh, the regulator the regulator of that <laughs> While also <laughs> um, encouraging safe forms of curiosity, uh, it's, it's interesting the ways in which um, I think Welcome as a, a collection, as a place, doesn't like to tell people what to do, yet has very strong internal senses of, of what people should or shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Uh, and so it doesn't really like do not touch signs. Yeah. Yet and some artworks you can touch and some artworks you can't. And it's it's not always obvious what the, what that distinction okay. is. Um, okay, so there you are in the gallery. Yeah, there I am in the gallery. And um, I'm kind of uh, walking around and seeing that uh, two people are kind of leaning into this ph- photograph, which um, doesn't have a glass frame on it. And they are directly in front of me, so they're kind of obscuring the the image. But what it looks like to me is that they're leaning in to, like, scratch it. Mm-hmm. And uh, me, in my uh, conservative gallery mode, I'm like, they surely couldn't be scratching a photograph in a gallery on a wall space. Uh, in public in, view. In public view. <laughs> and so I kind of... After a few seconds of shock, I'm like, I go over and uh, kind of talk to them. And I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm afraid you can't uh, touch this artwork. And they're very polite about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry. And then they kind of just wander off. Um, And then I kind of inspect to see if any damage has been done. Doing your duty. Well done. Doing my duty. And in fact, some damage has been done. And actually in the area where I've described this kind of narrow wrist section connecting to the the hand, the ballooned hand, there is one really deep uh, scratch through the photograph and then several smaller scratches all around. And even the really deep one doesn't look like it was just one instance of a scratch. And I sort of surmised that because it didn't even seem like they had too much of an opportunity to, to, to scratch it if they did. And so I surmised that actually, and subsequently kind of watching out for it in the gallery and seeing how different uh, visitors interact with it, um, that this has been scratched in this one specific spot across this whole big photograph uh, multiple times. For whatever reason, that kind of sent up a kind of complex set of emotions for me. You know, the simple question, why scratch an artwork in a gallery? Mm -hmm. Why scratch it? there in particular oh and actually yeah there were scratches across the 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 ballooned hand as well and uh to my mind maybe aspects of that spoke to questions of um like disability as well and um that there's something quite visibly 
non-normative mm-hmm. about this image and that people are, are getting at it. Yeah. In the space, though, it's not like to suggest that this is the only depiction of a non what we might think of as a non-normative body um mm. there are lots did you see anything similar on other images or other figures in the gallery or is it very localized to this piece so there's a highly contentious artwork which i think is going to be removed soon well because the whole gallery is being written down but i definitely think the gallery is having a reorientation away from this kind of artwork there's a uh, a piece called i can't help the way that i feel Um, which involves this body that is kind of huge and globular and sort of amorphous, Uh, doesn't have arms or a face and just has legs, really. Mm -hmm. And that piece, people feel inclined to touch. So there are different artworks that people feel inclined to touch. I think the thing that I found quite interesting is how localised the damage was with this one. Mm. And, you know, one of the questions is, is it just the case that one person scratched it once in that area and everyone subsequently has just been checking if that's a real scratch, yeah. if that's part of the artwork or if, or, you know, like a, like an anchor dropped into a octopus's den where they now all pray to, <laughs> to some octo god. Yeah. Is it just that one instance has sort of like set off this chain reaction? Yeah. Or is this, is there something about this artwork that makes certain members of, of the public want to damage it in this area yeah i was reading an interview with alexa wright about her work and mm. she was saying that it's like it's about like questioning the authenticity of experience mm. but also the authenticity of the photograph and perhaps there's something deeply challenging about this representation that appears to be part of the photograph mm. because they're not done in a caricature way despite mm. the fact this one is ballooned mm. they are meant to look like actual parts of a human body Mm. so this idea of being able to like introduce a subjective experience within what appears to be a very like standard portrait photograph Mm. is something like quite challenging to the visitor maybe it's interesting and i i absolutely i see what you're saying in terms of that challenge Mm. it's just and and maybe this is maybe i'm just hugely conservative and I've been schooled in in ways of using libraries or, or galleries in a particular mode or I, you know, but to my mind, that challenge wouldn't necessarily, unless it was hugely offensive, mm. incredibly offensive, that challenge wouldn't necessarily invite me to de- deface or destroy the artwork. And it's interesting that that, but that, that is what has happened, that, that clearly a lot of people feel so confronted by this artwork in some way that they've... And it's you know I've not really gone up to people and and interviewed them and asked them why did you feel able to 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 do this to this particular mm-hmm. artwork in this way, yeah. but it's interesting that it's called that out of people not just once but multiple multiple times. Mm. Mm. So when we think about this uh, piece within the gallery space, mm. it's in a gallery called Medicine Now, mm-hmm. which, as you've alluded to, is being refurbished. Mm-hmm. So it closes the 22nd of April 2019. Um, and the new gallery will be reopening, I think, in September mm-hmm. 2019. So uh, it's kind of the last days of this gallery space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been around for 12 years, I think, when I was looking into it. It was curated in 2007. Mm-hmm. So perhaps we see like an archive in this space of what was thought to be acceptable or a novel and interesting way of presenting ideas about medicalization of the human body mm. uh, in 2007. And this is the series that uh, Wright has got were made in 1997. Mm. So this is 10 years 
pre to, to the gallery opening when I was looking, they have uh, some wonderful pictures in the collection in the series, the after image of people at their computers in 1997, <laughs> like these fantastic, like old tiny screens with like the like beige keyboards. So wonderful. <laughs> Green and black type. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, so much. So good. I was like, oh, it's a throwback. <laughs> um, but that this like the gallery space is constructing this idea of what it means to question medicalization. Would mm. you say that's a reasonable way of? Yeah, so uh, to kind of give an uh, an introduction, and may maybe this would have been more appropriate at the beginning, I don't know, uh, but to give a, an introduction to Welcome Collection. Welcome was in the 19th century, a kind of uh, wealthy entrepreneur, uh, ran a pharmaceutical company and uh, was fascinated with the kind of history and evolution of medicine, not as a kind of Western hospital phenomenon, but as a broad human phenomenon. Uh, and so was really interested in the art, uh, science, culture, and religion of of health in a very broad and nebulous way. Yes. And he, like all mortals, died uh, and left in his wake a, a lucrative pharmaceutical company and uh, a kind of a foundation whose uh, raison d'etre was to use science to improve human health and fast forward uh about 100 years about 100 years <laughs> yeah well yeah yeah and one of the ways in which the welcome foundation or whatever it was called at that time the welcome trust thought to do that uh in the early 2000s was to actually um bring out a lot of his archived uh, materials, a lot of his objects that he had collected over his lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, these kinds of variety of objects that in some way related to, to health and medicine. Which um, we should say were like vast and extensive. Like Henry Wellcome spent hundreds of millions of pounds while mm. he was alive, which in the Victorian period is like a lot of money, mm. on just buying things that came up for auction. Just... Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the the stated number is that he had, by the time of his death, over a million objects. Um, now, how many we had in our collections actually is probably um, when he died, a lot of them got dispersed to various uh, galleries and museums. And so even, even now in the Medicine Man Gallery, which is a kind of... Um, is, is his artworks collected over his lifetime. Um, a lot of them have um, science museum labels, label numbers on them, because they're still, I believe, technically owned by the science museum, and we've borrowed them back. Yeah, so this decision was made to um, to kind of, rather than have these things festering in, in uh, you know, warehouses, to bring them out to the public, and that the best way to maybe, one of the best ways to improve human health, or a way to improve human health, was to share uh, knowledge around um, science and medicine and, and instantiate conversations around science, uh, particularly biomedical science, uh, which I thought was quite, a uh, you know, this idea of broadening out knowledge and making it less of an elitist thing and, and making it something for the public. So there was this decision to open Welcome Collection in order to share that wealth of knowledge and to facilitate conversations. And so part of that collection, the Medicine Man Gallery, his objects, uh, his historical objects from collected during his lifetime. And then that was accompanied, there was a decision to make an updated gallery, Medicine Now, um, which was reflecting on biomedical questions of today. Um, and so this is where Alexa Wright's piece comes in as a, it it's kind of housed in this red box, which is the box that kind of deals with lived experience. Um, 
in, in that medicine now gallery there are kind of these different separations of like one's genetics one's like epidemics uh at that time who world health organization yep. had say, stated that obesity was a uh pandemic and so obesity was kind of front and center within that gallery at that time mm. anyway so this this uh, alexa writes pieces in the lived experience section and the aesthetics of these two galleries, mm. like the idea of Henry Wellcome's collection and the collection that is then the medicine now, mm -hmm. the aesthetics are very different. So they mm. kind of speak to some quite different uh, ideas about what it might mean to address health mm. in these spaces. So if we think about the medicine now gallery, mm. um, it's very white, it's quite clinical. The pieces, like you say, are some of them are three dimensional. They stand mm. alone. There aren't signs that say do not touch. Mm. Compared to the Medicine Man, mm. like historic gallery, it's much. That's much more like a cabinet of curiosities. Mm. Brown wood, uh, yeah. It, the cabinets built, uh, kind of dark, low lit. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, has this kind of reverential, uh, kind of uh, what's the word like uh, Victoriana vibe. Yeah, mm. um, and it's got like most of the objects are in glass boxes mm. behind a glass panel they're kind of things that you could look down on mm. or they're on the wall there's some photographs and some artwork mm. but again they're kind of collected as a like assemblage mm. of like lots of different images mm. whereas this one is much more standalone and mm. um, the, the objects in the medicine now gallery are much more like individual yeah um and seen as like representative of perhaps different problems mm. or different medical types or mm. whereas in the medicine man it's much more like a, a splurge of like a bunch of different things but lots of examples all together that you are meant to see as a, a collection mm. um so in in that light do you think that there's some different narrative about the way we medicalize the body or, or the way that we conceive of health mm. um comparing this like idea of what what alexa wright is getting at in this picture and more broadly in that gallery compared to the way that it was conceived of perhaps when Henry Wellcome was. Uh, it's difficult to, in terms of that question, I mean, one thing you hit upon earlier on is like how in 2007 this gallery was designed and how it might be perceived now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think there is a, there are real differences in terms of, um, um, I think... It was or it conceptualized itself in 2007 as quite like edgy uh, and was pushing boundaries and being quite challenging and, you know, hosted, had a number of temporary exhibitions that, you know, made people faint because they uh, um, showed images of brain surgery. Um, and so people would pass out and articles would be written about. And so there was this very there was this culture of trying to to shock um, and also challenge. And, you know, I think there's there are interesting values in that. Um but it's definitely at odds with our culture today. Mm -hmm. um, in in the in the twelve years that have elapsed, I think, um, and and maybe you know particular questions about identities that are considered non-normative. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, yeah, I think around about the same time, Louis Theroux had his Wild Weekends series, mm -hmm. which again was very much this. Um, cabinet of curiosities kind of semi modern day freak show on tv of like aren't these people from the perspective of a white cis male heterosexual guardian reader weird um <laughs> and isn't it interesting the perspectives they have and i think there's a lot about the welcome collection that is i mean or was kind of rise that tension mm -hmm. uh, of um um the the hope that maybe maybe a valuable 
aspect of it could be representing um realities and experiences that don't get representation i think the the kind of darker side of that is um who is that represented for mm -hmm. um who is doing the representation who who is the subject who is the object and and who is the audience that is being catered for yeah. and i think the museum has uh sometimes fallen foul of uh bad practice in that in that regard um the current recreation i think um it's being recreated curated by someone called Claire Barlow, who did a contentious job of um, curating the queer exhibition at Tate Britain um, a year or two ago, um, but has, it seems, I think, good impulses with uh, the Medicine Now Gallery. And whereas the previous artworks in the Medicine Now Gallery were often people who didn't have lived experience of, of um, pathologization or, or disability, um, making artworks about pathologization and disability. Of which this might be seen as an example. Of my, of which this this is an example, yeah. Um, um, I think Claire Barlow is very keen to uh, focus on and centre the works of people who, who have lived experience. And so it's very much more them exploring what they want to explore um, through art rather than someone coming in with a camera and making decisions about their experience and and kind of uh, framing that in particular ways. Mm. Yeah. Well, th perhaps this is like quite nice contrast then to like the very visible um, allusion made in the Medicine Man gallery to mm. the Cabinet of Curiosities mm. compared to a much more subtle allusion in terms of style and presentation that's happening in the medicine now, mm. um, where we still have like some of these ideas about people coming in and taking photographs of uh, pathologized bodies mm. um, and showing them for an audience who maybe is not intended to be the subjects of these images. Mm. Uh, like the, you know, the white cis het male guardian reader you were alluded to earlier mm -hmm. is probably at least part of the intended audience mm -hmm. for, those, for those works. So the drawing on that narrative of like the cabinet of curiosities, but also like kind of the early ideas of natural history museums mm. that were also about capturing human bodies mm. um, in a very problematic way mm. um, comes through in different ways in these two galleries. Mm. And maybe maybe we could argue like slightly more dangerously in the medicine now, mm. given it's so much less explicit yeah. in that space, how much this is kind of showing these people as interesting examples of the non-normative um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I wonder. I, I mean, um, this question of explicitness. Mm. Uh, um, I feel like p potentially that's a retroactive category always in yeah. terms of like this idea of the museum or the the herbarium of um, a physical space in which to order nature and understand the distinctions of of nature and to kind of divide and scientize. Um, uh, that was, yes, that was the explicit intention maybe then, but also maybe wasn't seen as something, you know, the problematism maybe comes in reflection. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, um, there are implicit organising features and assumptions that are operating within the the update of medicine now and, and all museums mm -hmm. that um, aren't always, 
you know, we're, we're never able to address the ideology, mm-hmm. really, because we're always living it. And therefore, we take it as natural and normal. Yeah. Natural, normal. Those, those great words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And I mean, this, I think, is like this idea of normal within the medicine gallery is a particularly interesting thing because the idea of being normal, especially yeah. in a pathology sense or a medical sense, is so like artifactually constructed mm. from around the time that Henry Wellcome was collecting yeah. um, onwards. So, you know, prior to this, maybe people didn't think of things like normal, normative uh, behaviours or normal normative bodies in the same way. Or... Uh, ooh, interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I, so I yeah, I should say I use the word normative generally over normal. Normal is this kind of naturalized word. Mm-hmm. What um, when I say normative, I mean what people consider to be the normal. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I inflect that level of ideology in there that like, um, you know, like that uh, the idea that the nuclear family is is what's normal is a normative idea. Yeah doesn't really play out in the real world yeah. but it's what you will see yeah. 90% of the time on TV yeah. um, and so that distinction of actually what the presented reality versus the real reality if that makes sense and yeah. I think yeah museums are very much a part of of that construction of um, we identify what is abnormal uh, in order to, to bolster and reinforce the and it's often you know there are loads of different operations but there's there's sometimes this like binary operation of like we know that the male and female is is the the normal, uh, and even within that, right? What's normal is that the man is superior mm-hmm. to the woman, mm-hmm. and and these you have these kind of ideological constructions, mm-hmm. um, and then things that exist outside of that queerness or, or altered expressions of gender mm-hmm. um, are considered the not normal, and somehow they're like denied but also placed into a gallery or placed into a, a museum mm-hmm. so that they're, they're pointed out in order to be like this is what is uh monstrous and this the fact that it exists it's the what's the word the exception that justifies the rule or whatever um and yeah museums very much fall into that that kind of codification of what is the the normative the normal and and the exception yeah i think actually alexa wright like wrote wrote a book in 2013 that's about this idea of like the monstrosity and mm. and and um i think one of the theses of her book is that these things are socially and culturally constructed. Mm. And I think her work is trying to confront some of those ideas about Mm. what is monstrous and what is normal. Mm. And the thesis of her book is that by experiencing these things more through images like her after images, Mm. we confront the idea of these things as being non-normative or abnormal, Mm. if we're using like this kind of ideas. And that therefore, like by challenging those those ideas that they are on the outside, we reconstruct what it is to be normative or normal mm. which i think it like from a sense of how this image is then shown in the gallery is quite interesting in terms of it being so reject well rejected by some visitors mm. in this way of like scratching yeah in a part of the work that she's trying to achieve with that is to challenge the ideas of what is normal mm. so i yeah i was gonna say so on this uh uh and maybe it's important to like uh identify myself in a variety of other ways in terms of my introduction uh in terms of uh uh describing so for example i self-identify as uh queer um which always has this relationship to the 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 normal the normative the hetero or cis normative um as someone who's non-binary um i am also uh mixed race um i have a number of uh invisible 
learning difficulties and disabilities, kind of neurodiversities. Um, and so this question of medicalization, this question of representation, um, it's kind of a, it's a hot topic for me. Um, and there are degrees to which I get emotional about it. And there are degrees to which I'm like a weird scientist myself. And I'm like, want to see myself under the lens <laughs> and, you know, want to understand sexuality and all these, you know, in its kind of complexity. Mm. Um, but I, I guess one of the things I'm really interested in is um, uh, the ways in which, so I guess I'm interested in mutation as a metaphor, as a biological process, but as a metaphor and how um, often and mutation and the monster can be pathologized mm. but actually maybe it's the uh the uh, the wheel of innovation in terms of uh evolution occurs through uh mutational forms mm -hmm. and that the monstrous air breathing fish of uh yesterday is the uh future species of all land dwelling vertebrates of tomorrow and uh, the ways in which what what seems monstrous or abnormal or impossible in life is actually the, f the future of life and the future of possibility mm -hmm. and I think that's that's an interesting for, for me that's the best that I can get out of that museum is the ways in which um, representing the diversity of, of life and and this category of the human and mm -hmm. what falls out of the uh, two-limbed, two-armed, um, you know, a particular mode of speech or a particular mode of skin colour or a particular, you know, what doesn't fall into those those normative categories, mm. how, uh, you know, how histories of erasure and oppression mm. um, might make individuals within that position or might make culture think that position is, is not right, mm -hmm. but actually... It's just it's just different. It's just a different context yeah. and a different way of moving through the world. Yeah, and mm. it's and it's it maybe comes back to the idea of it like being a specifically medical thing that constructs these as being. Mm. I mean, I'm not going to suggest that like prior to the 1800s, everyone was like infinitely more accepting, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but there is like an argument to suggest that some of the ways that we pathologize bodies now and we medicalize them in this like way mm. is a construct of like the Victorian Enlightenment era and that like tied in with those ideas is, is also the the idea of being able to display and show people like a taxonomy of the world and mm. what struck me when you were just talking is like the the, the variety and like beautiful variety of life mm. that is not not captured really as well as like maybe we might want to see now in 20 2019 um in that gallery space, it's not it's not quite as plural or as like exploratory of different identities as we maybe might hope. Uh, well, on that, yeah, I think that's maybe uh, one of uh, Claire Barlow's intentions. Is Let's to, hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she, that's definitely one of her stated intentions is to to kind of um, uh, incorporate more of that. Uh, diversity of, of human experience mm -hmm. um uh again i think you know there are always questions around that like mm -hmm. how do you do that properly and right and 
ultimately you never really can um, but you can do the, the best possible job and, and I'm hopeful she definitely sounds like she's got the best of intentions and so mm-hmm. I, I hope it manifests in her yeah yeah um, and when you talk about this like idea of like the best of the human it kind of brings to mind uh, the exhibition that's on short for a short time three months at the uh, science, science gallery, gallery mm-hmm. uh, which is called spare parts mm-hmm. um, about like ideas about body augmentation and mm-hmm. like what might post-humanism look like so mm-hmm. maybe we could see uh, like an emerging idea of like the human in the welcome collection versus an emergent idea of the post-human in an, in an exhibition like the spare parts and wonder mm-hmm. what the tension is there about like post post-human augmentation and reliance on technology yeah um yeah the spare parts exhibition uh it's quite sparse i don't know have you been already no yeah it's quite sparse um but i've been to three performances there already and it's it's i think the performances there are quite interesting and and so far i've seen uh, a live cannulization which is uh, someone getting a tube inserted into their like a drip feed inserted into the oh. it was a lot less gross than I'd hoped for oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's many reasons why I'm not a doctor and being incredibly bad with blood is definitely one of them fair play fair play <laughs> and then um, um, someone uh, breastfeeding an artist breastfeeding um, live um, and exploring um, th- um, how mother or, or uh, female parent to uh, child gives uh, um, their microbiome, mm-hmm. uh, their microbiota. Um, and so, yeah, there are some interesting things going on at the Science Gallery in this Bear Parts exhibition. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I guess welcome, because maybe one thing we've not touched on for, for the audience who haven't been there before, they have temporary thematic exhibitions. Yes. And so they have had moments of exploring these kind of human and non-human questions. Yeah. Um, so they had an exhibition in 2012, which was called Superhuman. Um, and the uh, poster image was uh, a pair of glasses, I believe, uh, some dentures and a hearing aid. Mm-hmm. And so their their notion of the prosthetic and the superhuman was relatively uh, loose and encompassing. Mm. Um, and it was kind of in response to... In, in no, as far as I can tell, I've not followed the money too far. Um, it's kind of a loose response to um, the advertising around the 2012 Paralympics, mm-hmm. uh, which was meet the superhumans, uh, which, again, uh, interesting set of questions there about hu- uh, the superhuman prosthetic mm-hmm. augmentation. Yep. Uh, oh, and the other exhibition that I guess does that is um, they had more recently, they had an exhibition called Making Nature, yes. which was all about the ways in which this kind of question of the, the table and categorization, mm. looking at uh, Linnaeus and uh, being influenced by Foucault's book, The Order of Things, mm-hmm. the ways in which we create a, a table or a, a grid, a matrix through which to read the world mm. and what slips through those or gets cut in half by by those uh, organizing matrices. Yeah. Um, that was a particularly interesting exhibition because it un, maybe in the way that the Welcome Collection is moving towards this idea of the subject being also the author of mm. their own narrative. There was like a call for giving in your own objects um, mm. as part of that. And I went to one later iteration. They had like a couple of, I don't know, exhibitions mm-hmm. under that theme. Mm-hmm. But one of them was objects that people had sent in about their experience of nature with audio recordings. And so perhaps there is a move, like a gesture in the collection there towards this idea of 
um, public authorship of experience. Yeah, that was a really interesting. I think it maybe wasn't communicated as well as as it as it could have been in terms of the uh, layout of the exhibition. Yeah, so the Making Nature exhibition was a three parter. The first one was this kind of exploring in this very standard curatorial mode, exploring artifacts that ex- explored the categorization of nature, mm-hmm. including a room dedicated to the post natural, yeah. the ways in which humans have intervened in mm-hmm. in nature. Yeah. Um, and then the one you described was called the Museum of Modern Nature, and that was kind of a public call out for people to bring in items that in some way spoke to the natural world for them. So almost like a modern taxonomy of of what a broad public think about the natural world today, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite a fascinating. Unfortunately, um, the labelling was quite light, and there was a book in which all the labels, the descriptions of the objects were. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the public came in to witness the objects and saw that there was no labelling looked at a melange of objects that didn't have any order and then walked out. Very Henry Welcome. <laughs> yeah, 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 very that, very that. And so I, you had to kind of like chase people around with guides being like, you should read the guide. I'm here for your experience. Yeah, let me assist in a non-salacious mode. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think that was a really fascinating approach. Um one thing you were saying earlier on about this Victorian positivism, mm-hmm. um, the kind of scientism of, of the Victorian era mm-hmm. in the kind of uh, late stages of the uncritical enlightenment. Uh, in terms of sexuality, just in terms of uh, a case in point, um, I think Foucault talks a lot about this. But um, So there were two, two, two people. Um, one of them came up with this term Uranians, and I think there was another one who was... Uh, it's a Hungarian who came up with the term homosexual, actually. Um, and both of them were kind of in, in correspondence. Uh, and their attempt was to um, scientize sexuality mm-hmm. in order to, um, I guess they had this liberationist intent, mm-hmm. uh, intent um, that through knowledge and knowing that this was a, a normal and natural Normal, mm-hmm. natural, mm-hmm. those words again. Normal, <laughs> natural part of, of nature. Um, it would remove it from the religious realm um, and therefore give it some kind of validity. Mm-hmm. I think their intentions, um, and I, I think they were probably quite biased. Uh, it seems like they were probably queer themselves. <laughs> um, uh, fair enough. Like, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that through, through understanding, um, there would be this route towards liberation. Unfortunately, um, the shift of sexuality away from the domain of the religious into the domain of the uh, medical, uh, rather than bringing forth understanding. Well, I mean, maybe that is what it did in the long term, but in the short term, what it did uh, was make people be like, oh, well, if it's, you know, if it's not a moral failing and it's a, uh, you know, medical med- failing, medical failing uh, we can correct it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's fine. We've got we've got ways to sort that then. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't. Yeah. It's not your fault that you're yep. uh, uh, as a person. Yeah. Uh, this is an inherent part of your. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so we can fix that. Um, and so that, that, you know, that tension of of because you were saying you were saying that not that prior to to mm. the 18th century, um, so I, yeah, yeah, people were just like infinitely more or liberal. Understanding, yeah. Uh, maybe the lack of liberalism, it was being channeled through a different mode. And yeah. yeah, it got reoriented through science. But prior to that, I guess it was kind of maybe maybe religious, moral, cultural, punitive. Mm. Um, and that just got reoriented towards the, the science. So in the Medicine Now gallery, do we see anything about sexuality then? Unfortunately, not sexuality in the way that um, most 
humans would understand it. Yeah, there's stuff on cloning. Um, <laughs> Not sure that's to do. Yeah, that's what you mean. Yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> but that's. But then that's quite interesting because I know that in the medicine man gallery there are like loads to do with sexuality yeah so the idea that then somehow like now we don't think about sexuality as being something that should be part of the medicine now gallery maybe there's a deliberate choice to try and remove sexuality from the pathologization of the body and Mm. the medicalization of sexuality but equally like it speaks to a different concern about not including it like yeah and um uh, maybe you know in the ways that it I, I this is me p- pure speculation on my part now mm-hmm. whereas everything else i've said is pure fact <laughs> um, uh, but potentially you know there were things that that it felt like it was able to challenge and say and things that it maybe it didn't i don't know it's interesting because for, certainly in terms of the uh, concretized permanent gallery mm-hmm. it didn't feature but actually when um the second uh, temporary gallery opened up. Um, it had a very extended exhibition called the Institute of Sexology, mm-hmm. uh, named after Hirschfeld's um, Institute of Sexology in from the, from the Weimar Republic that mm-hmm. got uh, sh- shut down by the Nazis. But that was the the kind of first exhibition mm-hmm. within that that uh, temporary space, and that however many years ago that was, mm-hmm. like I want to say maybe seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, and so. As much as it maybe isn't concretized absolutely in the in that aspect of the the permanent exhibition, it's definitely something that the the gallery as a whole has addressed. Yeah. And in the um, reading room, um, the other permanent space, the kind of uh, mixed purpose permanent space, there's a lot around sexuality in there. Yeah. So it it, it kind of comes up, but yeah, it's, it is interesting that they uh, elected not to have it in this space. Yeah, and and maybe that's uh, to kind of speak to that, to to speak to what the... I mentioned that there were categories of the space. So, as I say, one of them was specifically, I think, looking at malaria. Mm -hmm. um, Obesity was addressed, uh, genetics Mm -hmm. and genomics, and and one other category apart from lived experience that I can't remember. Mm. And so, with all of them, um, I guess if you had, like... Because the lived experience category was definitely about pathologization in this way that we might understand it today and you wouldn't say that well at least in the UK that sexuality is pathologized today in that same way and so for them to have put it in there might have been quite a controversial choice yeah Uh, I think it would have been actually a really interesting choice to put it in there to be like uh, well you know we may not think of uh, queers as sick today uh, or we might, uh, depending on who you are. But historically, you know, and not too far in the distant past, um, yeah, you know, um, and within particular communities, you know, I've, I've had, I have friends who have been had various kinds of therapy to try and um, uh, de-gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and perhaps less like extreme than that, but the the intense like asexualization or like non-sexualization of people with disability in general mm, yeah, yeah. like that would have been an interesting thing for lived experience mm, to touch for on sure. because mm. again like what we see presented is these people I mean this picture does have like some allusion to a, like a relationship in that she's got this, a wedding ring yeah, yeah and engagement. she's talking about this engagement ring mm. but there's no like specific discussion about the ways that well maybe and maybe like there's an argument to say this piece is not the place for that but there may have been a space in that another moment in which representing uh, uh, people with disabilities fucking would have been a uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which yeah again that does happen 
uh, some pretty racy books in the reading room. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but yeah, in in that space, yes, in the medicine now, it's not considered a critical enough issue no. um, to, to to kind of be addressed and curated. It's very true. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So we see, yeah, so that's interesting. It is, yeah. It's I think it's always fascinating, and I think it, it plays to this question of like what gets left in and, and what gets left out because yeah. obviously there's a process of like we were aware there's a process of selection within a gallery like mm. there's not infinite space but just to think critically about what has been chosen who gets chosen and why does it get chosen and what, what narratives do get left out for sure exactly. yeah and who do they get chosen for yeah, yeah. exactly mm. exactly so one of the the pieces in medicine now is is the first full printout of the um the human genome project so the first full printout of, uh, with, with caveats, the first full printout of a human, human genome. Mm-hmm. And that raised uh, a lot of intense ethical questions about if we have the capacity to manipulate this information, what some people describe as the book of life, um, that, you know, the information through which a human is constructed, um, what kinds of humans would we construct? Mm. What kinds of humans would we choose not to construct? And, um, you know, what kind of things that we consider disabilities now might we choose not to have in the future? Mm. In a society where particular aesthetics and beauties are considered more desirable, if there's this access to manipulating our bodies, will... Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in, in my best, in my queerest imagination, I would hope that these technologies would produce a proliferation. Yeah. Of... Bodies yes. of, uh, you know, uh, I want cat ears, I want to photosynthesize and be green, I want, you know, I want octopus limbs, um, but also I want to be attractive and loved by normative mainstream society, so maybe I just want to be X amount of tall and, uh, you know, or, you know, this kind of intelligent or, uh, and yeah, I do wonder if these technologies won't lead to this, you know, utopic, diverse path where we all commune with monarch butterflies or whatever, mm-hmm. but actually lead to this very, like, uh, eugenicist future mm-hmm. in which we uh, look the same and the earth is sterile because we've decided bacteria are gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, like, maybe there's an important space in a, in a new version of this gallery for that voice mm. uh, to discuss, like, why it's important that people decide to keep children mm. um, regardless of, like, their bodies or their neurodiversity. Um, maybe that's an interesting thing that we could perhaps hope to see in a future incarnation of a gallery that discusses gene editing and genetics mm. is, is the plurality of people who want to exist and are, you know, moving away from this idea of it being like medically or like culturally preferred to be a particular way. As someone who uh, I should say doesn't have a functioning womb and is very unlikely to bear my own children, um, I think uh, when I was getting into this kind of politics, I used to have quite a, a strong and entitled opinions about about this kind of thing. And um, several friends, quite rightly, were just like, um, I don't think it's up to us to really Mm. um, tell women what to do with their bodies. Um, And, um, uh, you know, if if they want to terminate pregnancy for whatever reason, that's Mm. that's totally up to them. And I think that's totally that that is, I think, an ethical principle that is important to, to uphold. I think what should be upheld also and maybe that's that's the distinction is mm-hmm. is saying um 
how do you create a situation where uh, a society, and I think this is, sorry, yeah, this is my, in, in my post, I'm invested in, we mentioned post-humanism earlier on, mm. it's politics I'm quite invested in, but I think often it, it often, and medicine in general often falls on the individual, mm-hmm. um, and we don't think about demographics, and we don't think about support, mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, things like depression, uh, you know, might emerge from a confluence of factors, mm-hmm. but often economic factors are such a huge part to play and, and access to, to resources, mm-hmm. um, and we don't want to deal with that because it's much easier to to give someone a pill or you know yeah. that that kind of question of of how you yeah. and so, and so maybe in a society where people felt more fully supported and yeah. able to you know mm. and a society where particular conditions weren't pathologized yeah. but also an individual wasn't expected to to raise another individual on their own or yeah. whatever yeah, yeah so yeah. May, maybe there's there's some I want to just add that caveat before I'm just like yeah. yeah but I think like maybe this is this is if we think about what the what the function of a gallery that discusses medicine mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the future of these spaces might be is like that this is an interesting point to have both of those things explored yeah, like yeah. to develop ideas of plural mm. understandings yeah. and mm. perhaps like something that maybe we don't see as much as we might in the medicine now compared mm. to the medicine man is a plurality of experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Case in point, this piece uh, by Alexa Wright is one of a series of pieces and yeah. yet we only have the single experience of this woman in that space. I mean, and I think, and to go back to how the intentions of this artwork and how it is presented this gallery, uh, we don't have this full piece. Mm. The full piece is the interview of the person, uh, a picture of them as they would be perceived externally and a picture of them that attempts to replicate that one particular aspect of their internal mm-hmm. experience and and that's the piece and that's not the piece that gets shown yeah, yeah. and i think uh or the piece that gets shown decontextualized doesn't not that artwork should teach or educate but there was an educative and explorative intention uh with the original artwork that isn't being shown in this gallery and what is being shown is the weird decontextualized version of it mm-hmm. uh and i think though though you know those kinds of questions of how even if the artwork was limited which i don't you know all artwork is limited but i think it its scope was broader than than it's being presented within this gallery mm-hmm. and that narrowed scope is is a decision you know um, Excellent. Mm. Is there anything particular that you feel like we've missed that you would like to include? Um, I mean, that's the nature of being finite beings in space and time, right? Um, Fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, Excellent. A wonderful, a wonderful, a wonderful response. Thank you, Zia. All right. Thank you so much, Zia. All right. Nice one. And that's it for this episode of Behind the Glass Cabinet. Thanks to Nicolette Chin, my editor and producer. Thanks to Sam Lee, the composer for the track of this podcast. And thank you to the University College of London Department for Culture and the Department for Science and Technology Studies, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. I've been Ellie Armstrong. You can find me online at, at Ellie the Element. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.